Welcome to Frig Friday, featuring Sigrid Unset's Kristen Lovren's Daughter, read by Michelle Hammond, sponsored by Gal's Guide. Kristen Lovren's Daughter by Sigrid Unset Winner of the Nobel Prize in Literature Book One The Wreath Part One Jorengard Chapter One When the earthly goods of Ivar Yesling the Younger of Sundbu were divided up in the year 1306, his property at Seal was given to his daughter Ronfrid and her husband Lavrens Bjorgelsen. Before that time they had lived at Skog, Lavrens Manor in Folo, near Oslo, but now they moved to Jorengard, high on the open slope at Seal. Lavrens belonged to a lineage that here in Norway was known as the Sons of Logmund. It originated in Sweden with a certain Laurentius Ostgotelagman, who abducted the Earl of Bielbo's sister, the maiden Bengta, from Vreta Cloister and fled to Norway with her. Herr Laurentius served King Hakon the Old and was much favored by him. The king bestowed on him the manor Skog. But after he had been in this country for eight years, he died of a lingering disease, and his widow, a daughter of the house of the Fulkongs, whom the people of Norway called a king's daughter, returned home to be reconciled with her kinsmen. She later married a rich man in another country. She and Herr Laurentius had had no children, and so Laurentius's brother Kettle inherited Skog. He was the grandfather of Lovrens Bjorgelsen. Lovrens was married at a young age. He was only twenty-eight at the time he arrived at Seal, and three years younger than his wife. As a youth, he had been one of the king's retainers and had benefited from a good upbringing, but after his marriage he lived quietly on his own estate, for Ronfred was rather moody and melancholy and did not thrive among people in the south. After she had had the misfortune to lose three small sons in the cradle, she became quite reclusive. Lovrens moved to Gudbrandsdal largely so that his wife might be closer to her kinsmen and friends. They had one child still living when they arrived there, a little maiden named Kristen. But after they had settled in at Jorendgard, they lived for the most part just as quietly and kept much themselves. Ronfred did not seem overly fond of her kinsmen, since she only saw them as often as she had to for the sake of propriety. This was partially due to the fact that Lovrens and Ronfred were particularly pious and God-fearing people, who faithfully went to church and were glad to house God's servants and people traveling on church business, or pilgrims journeying up the valley to Nidaros. And they showed the greatest respect to their parish priest, who was their closest neighbor, and lived at Romangard. But the other people in the valley felt that God's kingdom had cost them dearly enough in tithes, goods, and money already, so they thought it unnecessary to attend to fasts and prayers so strictly, or to take in priests and monks unless there was a need for them. Otherwise, the people of Jorengard were greatly respected and also well-liked, especially Lovrens, because he was known as a strong and courageous man, but a peaceful soul, honest and calm, humble in conduct, but courtly in bearing, a remarkably capable farmer, and a great hunter. 
He hunted wolves and bears with particular ferocity, and all types of vermin. In only a few years he had acquired a good deal of land, but he was a kind and helpful master to his tenants. Ronfred was seen so seldom that people soon stopped talking about her altogether. When she first returned home to Goodbrandstall, many were surprised, since they remembered her from the time when she lived at Sundbu. She had never been beautiful, but in those days she seemed gracious and happy. Now she had lost her looks so utterly that one might think she was ten years older than her husband instead of three. People thought she took the deaths of her children unreasonably hard, because in other ways she was far better off than most women. She had great wealth and position, and she got on well with her husband, as far as anyone could tell. Lawrence did not take up with other women. He always asked for her advice in all matters, and he never said an unkind word to her, whether he was sober or drunk. And she was not so old that she couldn't have many more children if God would grant her that. They had some difficulty finding young people to serve at Jorengard, because the mistress was of such a mournful spirit, and because they observed all of the fasts so strictly. But the servants lived well on the manor, and angry or chastising words were seldom heard. Both Lovrens and Ronfred took the lead in all the work. The master also had a lively spirit in his own way, and he might join in a dance or start up singing when the young people frolicked on the church green on sleepless vigil nights. But it was mostly older people who took employment at Jorengard. They found it to their liking and stayed for a long time. One day, when the child Kristen was seven years old, she was going to accompany her father up to their mountain pastures. It was a beautiful morning in early summer. Kristen was standing in the loft where they slept in the summertime. She saw the sun shining outside, and she heard her father and his men talking down in the courtyard. She was so excited that she couldn't stand still while her mother dressed her. She jumped and leapt after she was helped into every garment. She had never before been up to the mountains, only across the gorge to Vaga, when she was allowed to go along to visit her mother's kinsman at Sundbu, and into the nearby woods with her mother and the servants when they went out to pick berries, which Ronfred put in her weak ale. She also made a sour mash out of cowberries and cranberries, which she ate on bread instead of butter during Lent. Ronfred coiled up Kristen's long golden hair and fastened it under her old blue cap. Then she kissed her daughter on the cheek, and Kristen ran down to her father. Lovrens was already sitting in the saddle. He lifted her up behind him, where he had folded his cape like a pillow on the horse's loin. There Kristen was allowed to sit astride and hold on to his belt. Then they called farewell to her mother, but she had come running down from the gallery with Kristen's hooded cloak. She handed it to Lovrens and told him to take good care of the child. The sun was shining, but it had rained hard during the night, so the streams were splashing and singing everywhere on the hillsides, and wisps of fog drifted below the mountain slopes. But above the crests, white, fair-weather clouds climbed into the blue sky, and Lovrens and his men said it was going to be a hot day later on. Lovrens had four men with him, and they were all well armed, because at that time there were all kinds of strange people in the mountains, although it seemed unlikely they would encounter any such people because there were so many in their group, and they were only going a short way into the mountains. Kristen liked all of the servants. Three of them were somewhat older men, but the fourth, Arne Geirdsen of Finsbrecken, was a half-grown boy and Kristen's best friend. He rode right behind Lovrens because he was supposed to tell her everything they saw along the way as they passed. 
They rode between the buildings of Roman guard and exchanged greetings with Eirik the priest. He was standing outside scolding his daughter. She ran a house for him, about a skein of newly dyed yarn that she had left hanging outdoors the day before. Now it had been ruined by the rain. On the hill across from the parsonage stood the church. It was not large, but graceful, beautiful, well-kept, and freshly tarred. Near the cross outside the cemetery gate, Lavrence and his men removed their hats and bowed their heads. Then Kristen's father turned around in his saddle, and he and Kristen waved to her mother. They could see her out on the green in front of the farm buildings, back home. She waved to them with the corner of her linen veil. Kristen was used to playing almost every day up here on the church hill and in the cemetery, but today she was going to travel so far that the child thought the familiar sight of her home and village looked completely new and strange. The clusters of buildings at Jorengard, in both the inner and outer courtyards, seemed to have grown smaller and grayer down there on the lowlands. The glittering river wound its way past into the distance, and the valley spread out before her, with wide green pastures and marshes at the bottom, and farms with fields and meadows up along the hillsides beneath the precipitous gray mountains. Kristen knew that Lopsgard lay far below the place where the mountains joined and closed off the valley. That was where Sigurd and Jan lived, two old men with white beards. They always teased her and played with her whenever they came to Jorengard. She liked Jan because he carved the prettiest animals out of wood for her, and he had once given her a gold ring. But the last time he visited them, on Whitsunday, he had brought her a knight that was so beautifully carved and so exquisitely painted that Kristen thought she had never received a more marvelous gift. She insisted on taking the knight to bed with her every single night, but in the morning when she woke up he would be standing on the step in front of the bed where she slept with her parents. Her father would tell her that the knight got up at the first crow of the cock, but Kristen knew that her mother took him away after she fell asleep. She had heard her mother say that he would be so hard and uncomfortable if they rolled on top of him during the night. Kristen was afraid of Sigurd of Lopsgard, and she didn't like it when he took her on his knee, because he was in the habit of saying that when she grew up, he would sleep in her arms. He had outlived two wives, and said he would no doubt outlive the third as well, so Kristen could be the fourth. But when she started to cry, Lovrens would laugh and say that he didn't think Margaret was about to give up the ghost any time soon, but if things did go badly and Sigurd came courting, he would be refused. Kristen needn't worry about that. A large boulder lay near the road, about the distance of an arrow shot north of the church, and around it there was a dense grove of birch and aspen. That's where they played church, and Tomas, the youngest grandson of Eirik the priest, would stand up and say mass like his grandfather, sprinkling holy water and performing baptisms when there was rainwater in the hollows of the rock. But one day the previous fall, things had gone awry. First, Tomas had married Kristen and Arna. Arna was still so young that he sometimes stayed behind with the children and played with them when he could. Then Arna caught a piglet that was wandering about, and they carried it off to be baptized. Tomas anointed it with mud, dipped it into a hole filled with water, and, mimicking his grandfather, said the mass in Latin and scolded them for their scanty offerings. That made the children laugh, because they had heard the grown-ups talking about Eirik's excessive greed. 
and the more they laughed, the more inventive Tomas became. Then he said that this child had been conceived during Lent, and they would have to atone before the priest and the church for their sin. The older boys laughed so hard that they howled, but Kristen was so filled with shame that she was almost in tears as she stood there with the piglet in her arms. And while this was going on, they were unlucky enough that Irik himself came riding past on his way home after visiting a sick parishioner. When he saw what the children were up to, he leaped from his horse and handed the holy vessel abruptly to Bentine, his oldest grandson, who was with him. Bentine almost dropped the silver dove containing the holy host on the ground. The priest rushed in among the children and thrashed as many as he could grab. Kristen dropped the piglet, and it ran down the road, squealing as it dragged the christening gown behind, making the priest's horses rear up in terror. The priest also slapped Kristen, who fell, and then he kicked her so hard that her hip hurt for days afterwards. When Lavrens heard of this, he felt that Eirik had been too harsh toward Kristen, since she was so young. He said that he would speak to the priest about it, but Ronfred begged him not to do so, because the child had received no more than she deserved by taking part in such a blasphemous game. So Lavrens said nothing more about the matter, but he gave Arna the worst beating the boy had ever received. That's why, as they rode past the boulder, Arna plucked at Kristen's sleeve. He didn't dare say anything because of Lavrens, so he grimaced, smiled, and slapped his backside. But Kristen bowed her head in shame. The road headed into dense forest. They rode in the shadow of Hammer Ridge. The valley grew narrow and dark, and the roar of the Log River was stronger and rougher. When they caught a glimpse of the river, it was flowing icy green with white froth between steep walls of stone. The mountain was black with forest on both sides of the valley. It was dark and close and rank in the gorge, and the cold wind came in gusts. They rode over the footbridge, across Rost Creek, and soon they saw the bridge over the river down in the valley. In a pool just below the bridge there lived a river sprite. Arna wanted to tell Kristen about it, but Lavren sternly forbade the boy to speak of such things out there in the forest and when they reached the bridge, he jumped down from his horse and led it across by the bridle as he held his other arm around the child's waist. On the other side of the river, a bridle path led straight up into the heights, so the men got down from their horses and walked, but Lavrens lifted Kristen forward into his saddle so she could hold on to the saddle-bow, and then she was allowed to ride Goldsvine alone. More gray crests and distant blue peaks striped with snow rose up beyond the mountainsides as they climbed higher, and now Kristen could glimpse through the trees the village north of the gorge. Arna pointed and told her the names of the farms that they could see. High up on the grassy slope they came to a small hut. They stopped near the split-rail fence. Lavren shouted and his voice echoed again and again among the cliffs. Two men came running down from the small patch of pasture. They were the sons of the house. They were skillful tar burners, and Lavrens wanted to hire them to do some tar distilling for him. Their mother followed with a large basin of cold cellar milk, for it was a hot day, as the men had expected it would be. "'I see you have your daughter with you,' she said after she had greeted them. "'I thought I'd have a look at her. You must take off her cap.' 
They say she has such fair hair. Lawrence did as the woman asked, and Kristen's hair fell over her shoulders all the way to the saddle. It was thick and golden like ripe wheat. Isrid, the woman, touched her hair and said, "'Now I see that the rumors did not exaggerate about your little maiden. She's a lily, and she looks like the child of a knight. Gentle eyes she has as well. She takes after you and not the Yeslings. May God grant you joy from her, Lavrens Bjorgelsen. And look how you ride, Goldsvine, sitting straight as a king's courtier,' she teased, holding the basin as Kristen drank." The child blushed with pleasure, for she knew that her father was considered the most handsome of men far and wide, and he looked like a knight as he stood there among his servants, even though he was dressed more like a peasant, as was his custom at home. He was wearing a short tunic, quite wide, made of green-dyed homespun, and open at the neck so his shirt was visible. He had on hose and shoes of undyed leather, and on his head he wore an old-fashioned, wide-brimmed woolen hat. His only jewelry was a polished silver buckle on his belt and a little filigree brooch at the neck of his shirt. Part of a gold chain was also visible around his neck. Lovrens always wore this chain, and from it hung a gold cross set with large rock crystals. The cross could be opened, and inside was a scrap of shroud and hair from the holy fru Ellen of Skovde, for the sons of Logmund traced their lineage from one of the daughters of that blessed woman. Whenever Lovrens was in the forest or at work, he would put the cross inside his shirt against his bare chest, so as not to lose it. And yet, in his rough homespun clothing, he looked more high-born than many a knight or king's retainer dressed in banquet attire. He was a handsome figure, tall, broad-shouldered, and narrow-hipped. His head was small and set attractively on his neck, and he had pleasing, somewhat narrow facial features, suitably full cheeks, a nicely rounded chin, and a well-shaped mouth. His coloring was fair, with a fresh complexion, gray eyes, and thick, straight, silky gold hair. He stood there talking to Isrid about her affairs, and he also asked about Tortoise, Isrid's kinswoman who was looking after Jorandgard's mountain pastures that summer. Tortoise had recently given birth, and Isrid was waiting for the chance to find safe passage through the forest so she could carry Tortoise's little boy down from the mountains to have him baptized. Lovren said that she could come along with them. He was going to return the next evening, and it would be safer and more reassuring for her to have so many men accompany her and the heathen child. Isrid thanked him. If the truth be told, this is exactly what I've been waiting for. We all know, we poor folks who live up here in the hills, that you will do us a favor if you can whenever you come this way. She ran off to gather up her bundle and a cloak. The fact of the matter was that Lovrens enjoyed being among these humble people who lived in clearings and on leaseholdings high up at the edge of the village. With them he was always happy and full of banter. He talked to them about the movements of the forest animals, about the reindeer on the high plateaus, and about all the uncanny goings-on that occur in such places. He assisted them in word and deed and offered a helping hand. He saw to their sick cattle, helped them at the forge, and with their carpentry work. On occasion, he even applied his own powerful strength when they had to break up the worst rocks or roots. That's why these people always joyfully welcomed Lovrens Bjorgelsen and Goldsvine, the huge red stallion he rode. 
The horse was a beautiful animal, with a glossy coat, white mane and tail, and shining eyes, known in the villages for his strength and fierceness. But towards Lovrens he was as gentle as a lamb, and Lovrens often said that he was as fond of the horse as of a younger brother. The first thing Lovrens wanted to attend to was the beacon at Heimhaugen. During those difficult times of unrest a hundred years earlier or more, the landowners along the valleys had erected beacons in certain places on the mountainsides, much like the wood stacked in warning bonfires at the ports for warships along the coast. But these beacons in the valleys were not under military authority. The farmer guilds kept them in good repair, and the members took turns taking care of them. When they came to the first mountain pasture, Lovrens released all the horses except the pack horse into the fenced meadow, and then they set off on a steep pathway upward. Before long, there was a great distance between trees. Huge pines stood dead and white like bones next to the marshy patches of land, and now Kristen saw bare gray mountain domes appearing in the sky all around. They climbed over long stretches of scree, and in places a creek ran across the path so that her father had to carry her. The wind was brisk and fresh up there, and the heath was black with berries, but Lovren said that they had no time to stop and pick them. Arna leaped here and there, plucking off berries for her, and telling her which pastures they could see below in the forest, for there was forest over all of Hofringsvang at that time. Now they were just below the last bare, rounded crest, and they could see the enormous heap of wood towering against the sky and the caretaker's hut in the shelter of a steep cliff. As they came over the ridge, the wind rushed towards them and whipped through their clothes. It seemed to Kristen that something alive which dwelled up there had come forward to greet them. The wind gusted and blew as she and Arna walked across the expanse of moss. The children sat down on the very end of a ledge, and Kristen stared with big eyes. Never had she imagined that the world was so huge or so vast. There were forest-clad mountain slopes below her in all directions. Her valley was no more than a hollow between the enormous mountains, and the neighboring valleys were even smaller hollows. There were many of them, and yet there were fewer valleys than there were mountains. On all sides, gray domes, golden flamed with lichen, loomed over the carpet of forest, and far off in the distance, toward the horizon, stood blue peaks with the white glints of snow, seeming to merge with the grayish-blue and dazzling white summer clouds. But to the northeast, close by, just beyond the pasture woods, stood a cluster of magnificent stone-blue mountains with streaks of new snow on their slopes. Kristen guessed that they belonged to the Ronacomp, the Boar Range, which she had heard about, for they truly did look like a group of mighty boars walking away with their backs turned to the village, and yet Arna said that it was half a day's ride to reach them. Kristen had thought that if she came up over the crest of her home mountains, she would be able to look down on another village like their own with farms and houses, and she had such a strange feeling when she saw what a great distance there was between places where people lived. She saw the little yellow and green flecks on the floor of the valley and the tiny glades with dots of houses in the mountain forests. She started to count them, but by the time she had reached three dozen, she could no longer keep track and yet the marks of settlement were like nothing in that wilderness.
She knew that wolves and bears reigned in the forest, and under every rock lived trolls and goblins and elves, and she was suddenly afraid, for no one knew how many there were, but there were certainly many more of them than of Christian people. Then she called loudly for her father, but he didn't hear her because of the wind. He and his men were rolling great boulders down the rock face to use as supports for the timbers of the beacon. But Isred came over to the children and showed Kristen where the mountain Vaga Vestfjeld lay, and Arna pointed out Graffjeld, where the people of the villages captured reindeer in trenches, and where the king's hawk hunters lived in stone huts. That was the sort of work that Arna wanted to do himself some day, but he also wanted to learn to train birds for the hunt, and he lifted his arms overhead as if he were flinging a hawk into the air. Isred shook her head. It's a loathsome life, Arne Gerdsen. It would be a great sorrow for your mother if you become a hawk hunter, my boy. No man can make a living doing that unless he keeps company with the worst kind of people and with those who are even worse. Lovrens had come over to them and caught the last remark. Yes, he said. There's probably more than one household out there that pays neither taxes nor tithes. I imagine you've seen one thing and another, haven't you, Lafrens? Isred hinted. You who have journeyed so deep into the mountains. Ah, oh, well, Lafrens said reluctantly. That could be, but I don't think I should speak of such things. We must not begrudge those who have exhausted their peace in the valley, whatever peace they may find on the mountain. That's what I think. And yet I've seen yellow pastures and beautiful hay meadows in places where few people know that any valleys exist— and I've seen herds of cattle and flocks of sheep, but I don't know whether they belong to people or to the others. That's right, said Isred. Bears and wolves are blamed for the loss of cattle up here in the mountain pastures, but there are much worse robbers on the slopes. You call them worse, said Lavrens thoughtfully, stroking his daughter's cap. In the mountains south of the Ronacomp, I once saw three little boys— the oldest about Kristen's age, and they had blonde hair and tunics made of hides. They bared their teeth at me like young wolves before they ran away and hid. It's not so surprising that the poor man they belonged to should be tempted to take a cow or two for himself. Well, wolves and bears all have young ones too, said Isrod peevishly, and you don't choose to spare them, Lavrens. Neither the full-grown ones nor their young— and yet they have never been taught laws or Christianity, as have these evildoers that you wish so well. Do you think that I wish them well because I wish for them something slightly better than the worst? said Lavrens with a faint smile. But come along now, let's see what kind of food packets Ronfred has given us for today. He took Kristen's hand and led her away. He bent down and said to her softly, I was thinking of your three baby brothers, little Kristen. They peeked into the caretaker's hut, but it was stuffy and smelled of mold. Kristen took a quick look around, but there were only earthen benches along the walls, a hearthstone in the middle of the floor, barrels of tar, and bundles of resinous pine sticks and birch bark. Lavrens thought they should eat outdoors, and a little farther down a birch-covered slope they found a lovely green plateau. They unloaded the pack horse and stretched out on the grass, and there was plenty of good food in Ronfred's bag. Soft bread and thin lefsa, butter and cheese, pork and wind-dried reindeer meat, lard, boiled beef brisket, two large kegs of German ale, and a small jug of mead. 
They wasted no time in cutting up the meat and passing it around, while Halvdan, the oldest of the men, made the fire. It was more comforting to have heat than to be without it in the forest. Isrid and Arna pulled up heather and gathered birch twigs and tossed them into the flames. The fire crackled as it tore the fresh foliage from the branches, so that little white charred specks flew high up into the red mane of the blaze. Thick, dark smoke swirled up toward the clear sky. Kristen sat and watched. The fire seemed happy to be outside and free to play. It was different, not like when it was confined to the hearth back home and had to slave to cook the food and light up the room for them. She sat there leaning against her father with one arm over his knee. He gave her as much as she wanted to eat from all the best portions and offered her all the ale she could drink along with frequent sips of the mead. She'll be so tipsy she won't be able to walk down to the pasture, said Halfton with a laugh, but Lavren stroked her plump cheeks. There are enough of us here to carry her. It will do her good. Drink up, Arna. God's gifts will do you good, not harm, all you who are still growing. The ale will give you sweet red blood and make you sleep well. It won't arouse rage or foolishness. And the men drank long and hard, too. Isrid did not stint herself either, and soon their voices and the roar and hiss of the fire became a distant sound in Kristen's ears. She felt her head grow heavy. She also noticed that they tried to entice Lavrens to tell them about the strange things he had witnessed on his hunting expeditions, but he would say very little, and she thought this so comforting and reassuring, and she had eaten so much. Her father was holding a chunk of soft barley bread. He shaped little pieces with his fingers so they looked like horses, and he broke off tiny scraps of meat and set them astride the bread horses. Then he made them ride down his thigh and into Kristen's mouth. Before long, she was so tired that she could neither yawn nor chew, and then she toppled over onto the ground and fell asleep. When she woke up, she was lying in the warmth and darkness of her father's arms. He had wrapped his cape around both of them. Kristen sat up, wiped the sweat from her face, and untied her cap so the air could dry her damp hair. It must have been late in the day— for the sunshine was a gleaming yellow, and the shadows had lengthened and now fell toward the southeast. There was no longer even a breath of wind, and mosquitoes and flies were buzzing and humming around the sleeping group of people. Kristen sat quite still, scratching the mosquito bites on her hands, and looked around. The mountain dome above them shone white with moss and gold from the lichen in the sunshine, and the beacon of weather-beaten timbers towered against the sky like the skeleton of some weird beast. She started to feel uneasy. It was so odd to see all of them asleep in the bright, bare light of day. Whenever she woke up at home in the night, she would be lying snugly in the dark with her mother on one side and the tapestry that hung over the timbered wall on the other. Then she would know that the door and smoke vent of the room had been closed against the night and the weather outside, and she could hear the small noises of the sleeping people who lay safe and sound among the furs and pillows. But all of these bodies, lying twisted and turned on the slope around the small mound of white and black ashes, might just as well have been dead. Some of them lay on their stomachs and some on their backs with their knees pulled up, and the sounds they uttered frightened Kristen. Her father was snoring heavily— 
but when Halvdan drew in a breath, a squeak and a whistle came from his nose, and Arna was lying on his side with his face hidden in his arm, and his glossy light brown hair spread out on the heath. He lay so still that Kristen was afraid he might be dead. She had to bend over and touch him, then he stirred a bit in his sleep. Suddenly it occurred to Kristen that they might have slept a whole night, and that it was now the next day. Then she grew so alarmed that she shook her father, but he merely grunted and kept on sleeping. Kristen felt heavy-headed herself, but she didn't dare lie down to sleep, so she crept over to the fire and poked at it with a stick. There were still some embers glowing. She added some heather and small twigs which she found close at hand, but she didn't want to venture outside the circle of sleepers to find bigger branches. Suddenly there was a thundering and crashing from the field nearby. Kristen's heart sank and she grew cold with fear. Then she saw a red body through the trees and Goldsvine emerged from the alpine birches and stood there, looking at her with his clear bright eyes. She was so relieved that she jumped up and ran toward the stallion. The brown horse that Arna had ridden was there too, along with the pack horse. Then Kristen felt quite safe. She went over and patted all three of them on the flank, but Goldsvine bowed his head so that she could reach up to stroke his cheeks and tug on his golden-white forelock. He snuffled his soft muzzle in her hands. The horses ambled down the birch-covered slope, grazing, and Kristen walked along with them, for she didn't think there was any danger if she kept close to Goldsvine. He had chased off bears before, after all. The blueberries grew so thick there, and the child was thirsty and had a bad taste in her mouth. She had no desire for any ale just then, but the sweet, juicy berries were as good as wine. Over in the scree she saw raspberries, too. Then she took Goldsvine by the mane and asked him nicely to come with her, and the stallion obediently followed the little girl. As she moved farther and farther down the slope, he would come to her whenever she called him, and the other horses followed Goldsvine. Kristen heard a stream trickling and gurgling somewhere nearby. She walked toward the sound until she found it, and then she lay down on a slab of rock and washed her sweaty, mosquito-bitten face and hands. Beneath the rock slab, the water stood motionless in a deep black pool. On the other side, a sheer rock face rose up behind several slender birch trees and willow thickets. It made the finest mirror and Kristen leaned over and looked at herself in the water. She wanted to see if what Isrid had said was true, that she resembled her father. She smiled and nodded and bent forward until her hair met the blonde hair framing the round young face with the big eyes that she saw in the water. All around grew such a profusion of the finest pink tufts of flowers, called valerian. They were much redder and more beautiful here next to the mountain stream than back home near the river. Then Kristen picked some blossoms and carefully bound them together with blades of grass until she had the loveliest, pinkest, and most tightly woven wreath. The child pressed it down on her hair and ran over to the pool to see how she looked, now that she was adorned like a grown-up maiden about to go off to a dance. She bent over the water and saw her own dark image rise up from the depths and become clearer as it became closer. Then she saw in the mirror of the stream that someone was standing among the birches on the other side and leaning toward her. Abruptly, she straightened up to a kneeling position and looked across the water. At first she thought she saw only the rock face and the trees clustered at its base, but suddenly she discerned a face among the leaves. There was a woman over there with a pale face and flowing flaxen hair. 
Her big, light gray eyes and her flaring, pale pink nostrils reminded Kristen of Goldsvines. She was wearing something shiny and leaf green, and branches and twigs hid her figure up to her full breasts, which were covered with brooches and gleaming necklaces. Kristen stared at the vision. Then the woman raised her hand and showed her a wreath of golden flowers and beckoned to her with it. Behind her, Kristen heard Goldsvine whinny loudly with fear. She turned her head. The stallion reared up, gave a resounding shriek, and then whirled around and set off up the hillside, making the ground thunder. The other horses followed. They rushed straight up the scree so that rocks plummeted down with a crash, and branches and roots snapped and cracked. Then Kristen screamed as loud as she could. "'Father!' she shrieked. "'Father!' She sprang to her feet and ran up the slope after the horses, not daring to look back over her shoulder. She clambered up the scree, tripped on the hem of her dress, and slid down, then climbed up again, scrabbling onward with bleeding hands, crawling on scraped and bruised knees, calling to Goldsvine in between her shouts to her father, while the sweat poured out of her whole body, running like water into her eyes, and her heart pounded as if it would hammer a hole through her chest. Sobs of terror rose in her throat. Oh, father, father! Then she heard his voice somewhere above her. She saw him coming in great leaps down the slope of the scree, the bright, sun-white scree. Alpine birches and aspens stood motionless along the slope, their leaves glittering with little glints of silver. The mountain meadow was so quiet and so bright, but her father came bounding toward her, calling her name, and Kristen sank down, realizing now that she was saved. Santa Maria! Lovrens knelt down next to his daughter and pulled her to him. He was pale, and there was a strange look to his mouth that frightened Kristen even more. Not until she saw his face did she realize the extent of her peril. Child! Child! He lifted up her bloody hands, looked at them, noticed the wreath on her bare head, and touched it. What's this? How did you get here, little Kristen? I followed Goldsvine, she sobbed against his chest. I was so afraid because you were all asleep. But then Goldsvine came, and then there was someone who waved to me from down by the stream. Who waved? Was it a man? No, it was a woman. She beckoned to me with a wreath of gold. I think it was a dwarf maiden, father. Jesus Christus, said Lavrin softly, making the sign of the cross over the child and himself. He helped her up the slope until they came to the grassy hillside. Then he lifted her up and carried her. She clung to his neck and sobbed. She couldn't stop, no matter how much he hushed her. Soon they reached the men and Isred, who clasped her hands together when she heard what had happened. Oh, that must have been the elf maiden. I tell you, she must have wanted to lure this pretty child into the mountain. Be quiet, said Lawrence harshly. We shouldn't have talked about such things the way we did here in the forest. You never know who's under the stones, listening to every word. He pulled out the golden chain with the reliquary cross from inside his shirt and hung it around Kristen's neck, placing it against her bare skin. All of you must guard your tongues well, he told them, for Ronfred must never hear that the child was exposed to such danger. Then they caught the horses that had run into the woods and walked briskly down to the pasture enclosure where the other horses had been left. Everyone mounted their horses, and they rode over to the Yorengard pasture. It was not far off. The sun was about to go down when they arrived. The cattle were in the pen, and Tortoise and the herdsmen were doing the milking. Inside the hut, porridge had been prepared for them, 
for the pasture folk had seen them up at the beacon earlier in the day, and they were expected. Not until then did Kristen stop her weeping. She sat on her father's lap and ate porridge and thick cream from his spoon. The next day, Lovrens was to ride out to a lake farther up the mountain. That's where some of his herdsmen had taken the oxen. Kristen was supposed to have gone with him, but now he told her to stay at the hut. And you, Taurus and Isred, must see to it that the doors kept locked, and the smoke vent closed until we come back, both for Kristen's sake and for the sake of the little unbaptized child in the cradle. Tortoise was so frightened that she didn't dare stay up there any longer with the baby. She had not yet been to church herself since giving birth. She wanted to leave at once and stay down in the village. Lovren said he thought this reasonable. She could travel with them down the mountain the next evening. He thought he could get an older widow who is a servant at Jorengard to come up here in her place. Tortoise had spread sweet, fresh meadow grass under the hides on the bench. It smelled so strong and good, and Kristen was almost asleep as her father said the Lord's Prayer and Ave Maria over her. "'It's going to be a long time before I take you with me to the mountains again,' said Lawrence, patting her cheek. Kristen woke up with a start. "'Father, won't you let me go with you to the south in the fall, as you promised?' "'We'll have to see about that,' said Lawrence. And then Kristen fell at once into a sweet sleep between the sheepskins. <laughs>